Let's go through every single package installed with a Linux install image. I'm going through the software included with Slackware, but these are all open source applications and libraries, so whether you're running Slackware like me, or Fedora, Debian, BSD, or even Mac or Windows, you can probably download, install, and try these on your computer. So chances are, you'll be able to learn something from this podcast. Let's get started. I think we can get through the D section today. That's just kind of my gut feeling. Could be wrong, but we'll go for it. We'll try it. First one in the D section is DB48. That's the Berkeley database. Database Berkeley? Um, it's the Berkeley database. Berkeley database is kind of interesting because it is it is not a big series. It's not a relational database. It It is a software to store key and value pairs and then to retrieve those quickly. A couple of things occur to me when I look at DB48. Or I should say Berkeley database, I guess, because, I mean, DB48 is what is installed here on Slackware, but that'll be DB49 some other time, or DB52 at some point. You know, it's it's that's just the version number. Not a great package uh, name, I guess. It should probably be, like, I don't know, DBD, I think, or something like that. Data... I forget what it stands for. Anyway, point is, a couple of things occur to me when I thinking about the Berkeley database. Uh, first of all, my immediate thought, I guess, is why... Berkeley database instead of SQLite 3. I think for my money, and that's not worth a whole lot because I don't really do this professionally, for my money, I would just use SQLite 3. Like, I don't know. It's good enough for, like, everyone else. I don't know what advantage there is to database, uh, Berkeley database. SQLite 3, in my experience, has been fast, lightweight, convenient. It's a bu- it's got a beautiful interface. It- it's just easy to use. You can teach yourself SQLite 3 in like an afternoon, honestly, on anything, you know, whether it's on just from a terminal or interfacing with it through Python or Java or Lua or whatever else is out there. So that's one thought. And then the other thought, and, and I've got a theory about why, and, and the theory might be licensing. I could be wrong. I mean, I, you, you know, I, I don't know. But SQLite 3, I feel like maybe the licensing not being like explicit enough maybe could cause certain organizations uh, some concern. Although, you know, I mean, SQLite 3 is being used. I mean, you'll find instances of it from the from the factory on Mac OS. I mean, so I don't know. That's a pretty big sort of heavyweight corporation asserting the 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 liberty to use SQLite 3 whatever the license might be. So, well, I should say it used I I don't know that that it still is. I haven't looked at a Mac in 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 years, almost a decade probably at this point. So I could be, I mean, I'm sure I've seen a Mac. I mean, I'm just saying like I haven't sat down and like been on a Mac in at least a decade. So um so so maybe they've phased SQLite 3 out. I don't know, but they had it in their code for a while. So, I don't know. It seems pretty rock solid to me, but again, I don't know. Um so that was one thought, like why why that and not SQLite 3. And then the other thought is, why a database? I mean, if you're just talking about a key value pair, which is what Berkeley database mostly does, I mean, there are, you know, it does some things, it it has other capabilities. But, I mean, generally speaking, like, why not just use, I don't know, a YAML file, YAML mapping, or a an INI file, you know, like whatever. And and I think the answer there is because that's not, that that's plain text. So if you have that in a file, then 
your application has to scrub through every line until it finds the match that you're looking for. That's how that's how it works. Indexed file or rather binary files sort of they they, they have an index and a, an application can just it, it knows exactly what it's looking for. It can refer to this binary blob. It knows where exactly where to look without scrubbing through the entire file. It can be a lot quicker. It depends on what you're doing. It depends on the size of your application. It depends on the size of your data store, but it can be quicker. So that's Database Berkeley, to be honest. I was going to talk about some of the commands because in the uh, package there are several commands. I think on other operating systems this is often known as dbutils, uh, and, and here on, on Slackware it's just db48, uh, that, that includes the libraries and the utils. So the, the utils are like db underscore archive, db underscore checkpoint, db underscore deadlock, db underscore dump, db underscore hot backup, db underscore load, and so on. Uh, db underscore sql that's an important one apparently the sql support is is not not dangerous but not it's not a full sql data it's not a relational database so you can't do like joins and things like that it's 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 not it's that's not what it's for uh you can use db underscore dump for instance to do a I, I sorry. I should say I don't believe you can do joins. I I guess I could somehow be wrong. Maybe maybe there's like a technicality in there that someone could figure out how to do a a, a functional join or something. But anyway, um, db underscore dump dash p as in papa, and then the path to a database dumps the database. Just dumps it to your terminal. Uh, you can also so if if there's a database a db file, uh, something.db file, and it is a Berkeley database, because you can get .db, you know, the .db doesn't mean anything, it's just often that's what people call a Berkeley database, but it doesn't have to be .db. I mean, a .db could be anything. I could create a text file right now called test.db, and it would not be a Berkeley database. Um, so if you have a .db file, a Berkeley db file, then you can do an db underscore dump dash l, as in a list, and then the, the, the name of that database, the, the path to that database, like user share, um, actually there, there is, hold on, there is one, I'm just trying to remember what it is, db dash share slash fcitx, why couldn't I remember this, slash lib pinion slash zuyan underscore database slash bygram.db. That, if you look at it, if you have that on your system, I don't even know where this is from, to be honest. Uh, it is a Berkeley database, hash version 9, native byte order. So you can you could do um, a dump of that, and you'll see a bunch of bytes. You won't know what to make of them, but it'll be data on your in your terminal. Takes takes maybe a second or two to, to actually empty it all out into your terminal. It's it's um it's quite a lot of data. And uh if you if you suspect that a database file has multiple databases in it, uh then you can do a db underscore dump dash L and then the path to the database. And that'll list all the databases. Now it just so happens that this sample the singular sample one that I found on the system uh, does not contain multiple databases, so that's a, not a useful thing. But that's how you would do it if if something did have multiple databases. Uh, so so the commands do provide some interaction, some utility for Berkeley database, and there's there's a recover uh, utility, there's an archive, a backup, you know, 
lots of different utilities here. They get installed with DB48, and you can use them to analyze to some degree a Berkeley database, but it's it's not a full set of tools. Like if you're, once again, if you're thinking in terms of like MySQL admin or SQLite 3 or MariaDB admin, uh, then that's not what you're going to get with the DB utilities. That That, that is not it's just not there. It's just not. It doesn't exist. the 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 real um, the user base of of Berkeley database I think are programmers. They're going to integrate this into their applications. There are bindings for it for Python. There are bindings for it for C. There are bindings for it for Java. There's probably more than that, but those are the ones that I stumbled across as I was I was learning what Berkeley database was all about. So um, yeah, it it is a database. It's a it's a, it's a data store really. I mean, it is a database, but like if you really think about it, it's you can just call it a data store. It is a place to conveniently store data and extract that data again. If you go to Oracle's website, Oracle Oracle dot something, uh, then you can uh, docs.oracle.com, and then there's a bunch of stuff that I don't want to read out. So anyway, there is documentation for Berkeley DB command line utilities, and there's documentation for Berkeley DB in general on oracle.com. So if you want to see like a sample Java application, there's like this sample parking meter application where you, you know, through the Java interface, uh, the API for Berkeley, you create a parking meter, and then you your, the little application that you're writing uh, inserts data for cars that arrive at the meter and then leave at the meter at certain times, and it just kind of steps through. There's only two files. Well, there are lots of there are a couple of different files in the source code, but if you look in uh, the com slash uh, sample slash sleepy cat slash db or something like that then you'll find the two the two java files one is the data manager and then one is the sort of the parking mo- uh, the parking lot uh, you know sort of object as it were and and you can see how how it's interacted with it it from reading the source code and it's only like 100 lines in each file so it's not and a lot of that is comments so it's it's a really simple application not bad to look at i don't think if you read through it you if you've ever seen if you've ever done any programming to a database interface like SQL Lite 3 or MariaDB or MySQL, then it looks super familiar. It's like, oh yeah, okay, I get it. There's these function calls that, you know, you can kind of equate to SQL and you, you can see through it. You know, you're just like, oh, that's the create table thing right there. Um, and in fact, I think it is db underscore create. But I don't remember if you say the word table though. But anyway, you know, there's, there are interfaces that you, or rather, yeah, there are, there are functions that you call to do certain things like creating the database and then there there you import other stuff so that you can insert data into that database and so on pretty standard stuff to be honest so that's um database berkeley database interesting but i i don't see i could see myself never using berkeley database i i can imagine that in in order of sort of um likelihood. I, I could imagine, you know, YAML or INI for the basics, SQLite 3 for the middle, and then MariaDB for the complex. That's just kind of what I, I could foresee myself doing, uh, you know, when I needed, when I absolutely needed a database. Okay, well, ne- next up is Dbus 
glib or glib. Um, that's the D-bus bindings, or the sorry, the glib bindings for the D-bus IPC library. D-bus, of course, we've talked about it before. It's the subsystem on Linux that just manages all the different messages that have to fly across your computer unseen and un unknown by you. You don't know these things are happening, but they're happening all the time, right? You plug something in uh, like a device. Well, okay, you, well, UDEV knows that you've plugged something in. Does anything else know that you've plugged anything in? How are they going to find out that you've plugged anything in? Are they going to check? You don't want your application constantly checking uh, UDEV to see, have I plugged in a new thumb drive? If so, create a new entry in the sidebar of Dolphin. That's not, you wouldn't want Dolphin checking that every, you know, couple of seconds or every second or whatever. Um, so instead, you need a messaging service. And the messaging service is part of what Dbus does. It sort of monitors things and alerts things that are listening to Dbus to pay attention. So if Dbu if if the UDEV Dbus interface realizes that UDEV has just gotten a notification that something has been plugged into the computer, then Dbus dash or I mean UDEV dash Dbus can notify your Plasma desktop notification system, and suddenly you'll get a pop up if you have that enabled. Uh, that something new has been plugged in, what would you like to do? Would you like to mount it? Would you like to open it in K3B? Uh, would you like to eject it, ignore it, whatever? Okay, so that's that's Dbus in general, but, but this is specifically Dbus-Glib, and obviously one would have to know what Glib was, uh, and that's a, a GTK technology. It is a... Um, general purpose portable utility library providing uh, data types, macros, type conversions, string utilities, file utilities, and uh, main loop abstraction for GTK. That's what it does. It is, uh, it's a kind of a utilitarian library set for GTK. Why does it need knowledge of dbus well i'm assuming because uh sometimes glib needs to talk to dbus that's what i'm assuming i i don't know for sure all right then there's dbus dash python and that is as you might guess python bindings for dbus uh for the for the dbus message bus and uh, and again that's if you're programming in python and you want to send yourself or rather your user a notification or you need to talk to another system that might be sort of on the dbus network in air quotes, then this this Dbus library would enable you to do that. Or if you need to be listening, if your application needs to listen to Dbus, like maybe you're writing, uh, I don't know, a file manager or or an application that um, th that needs to be aware that a a device has been plugged in. You know, if you're doing like a um, uh, something with a, a webcam or something, then you would need to know possibly when a new webcam is is plugged in because if you've only checked for the webcam on your application at launch then someone's going to have to restart your application when they plug in a new webcam or you'll have to have a button to like refresh the list or whatever dbus happens automatically next one is dconf and dconf is Honestly, it's suspiciously like, and this is this is completely superficial. Well, I don't know if it's completely superficial. It is superficial from my perspective. It sounds suspiciously like Ber Berkeley database, to be honest. Like dconf is like a super lightweight. I th I'm pretty sure non-relational database, essentially, or 
you you could say data store if you wanted to. It's a they call it what do they call it? It's a GNOME thing. Um, what do they call it? They call it a I don't know. I don't know what they call it. Deconf is based on the concept of a profile. No. Um, so they it it's like a um it, it's sort of a registry, I guess, but it it's it's a database. You can edit it with like a GUI editor called I think Deconf editor, which I feel like we've talked about before. Maybe not. Um, and it 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 does. It, it does it basically what Berkeley database does. I mean, it, it saves... Oh, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah, they call it a key file something or another. Key file system, key file directories. Um, and so when you log into GNOME, quite quite probably... Well, well, you have a profile within GNOME. And so when you log into GNOME, it the system becomes aware of your of your profile that you've just authenticated to. And then it loads from deconf all of your GNOME settings. And that can that would include all kinds of stuff like uh, org slash GNOME slash desktop slash background. And the the value there would be, for instance, picture dash URI equals, and then the, the or, sorry, that was the key. The key is something like picture dash URI equals, and then the value, quote, file colon slash 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 user slash local slash uh, example slash example.jpg or png or whatever. Um, so that would be a sample entry that I've just taken right out of the uh, GNOME documentation. But there would be other stuff too. System slash proxy slash HTTP. And then the key might be host equals. And then the value would be 172.16.0.1. And then another key enabled equals value true. And so on. So it's, it's, it is really, really a lot like um, just an INI file. I mean, that it, looking at it, you know, sort of that way. But of course, it, it is a database, so you wouldn't really look at it that way. Um, the way that you would be looking at it would be through either an AP, a programming API where you're using it, you're writing to your, you're you're sending values to deconf. Or if you're a user and for whatever reason you feel the need to get in there and muck around with the data, you could do, like I say, I think it's deconf-editor is the utility. Um, and I should even, I should look. Let's do most on var log packages deconf. Nope. Packages slash deconf. There we go. Deconf dash editor. Oh, yes. We So we've definitely talked about this before because, um, or maybe we haven't, but it's, it's on the system. Deconf dash editor. So, um, it looks to me like deconf is the only executable in this package. There's a bunch of libraries, like a .so file, lib, deconf, settings.so, some documentation, and some header files. So once again, this is like one of those those components that, that's really meant for the developers to, de- to, to use as they're developing applications. And obviously, Slackware doesn't ship with GNOME, so this is really just for GNOME-ish applications that expect deconf to exist. Okay, it does look like we have not talked about deconf editor yet, and I, I feel like this is true because the next one in the list is deconf editor. So I'm going to just go to my K menu here and type in deconf, and yep, it comes right up. Deconf editor. I'll press return to that. It says thanks for 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 using deconf editor. Oh wow. Well, you're welcome. Uh, and it tells me to be careful. 
I'll be careful. Uh, it's a pretty simple little interface. It is structured in, as the GNOME documentation says, as basically key file directories. So, for instance, I'll go, let's go into desktop maybe. Uh, GNOME or iBus, let's go into GNOME. Crypto, uh, PGP, there we go. All kinds of um, things in here about configurations for my, apparently, the, the way that GNOME applications interact with PGP. So there's um, schema org.gnome.crypto.pgp, summary, ASCII armor, description when encrypting or signing PGP files, whether to use ASCII armor encoding, type name, boolean, default true. You get the idea. Deconf editor is kind of nice because you don't just see the key and value all the time. It's got little widgets sometimes, like here, use default value, and it's a little toggle switch. Uh, custom value, true or false, you can choose between the two. So it's it's a little bit, I don't know, you know, it, ha it has some, some interface uh, sugar to make things a little bit, I guess, maybe nice. Um, and that's it. And I'm going to leave this because I don't want to actually screw anything up. I don't use that many GNOME applications, but enough that I don't want to screw anything up. Uh, and so that's that's deconf. You're looking into into settings. And, you know, like, once again, does it have to be a database? A lot of people say no. A lot of people say no, it doesn't have to be a database. It, it should just be plain text files. And that's kind of the way that I lean as well, to be honest. I mean, it's all well and good to say, oh, I, I want it to, to be just plain text files in .config or something like that. But being the programmer and monitoring for uh, performance and things like that, s sometimes, I don't know, you have to defer to the programmer, right? I mean, I'm not saying that the programmer is always right, because sometimes programmers... <laughs> sometimes programmers get... Um, creative, purely out of either they haven't thought it through, or they want to learn something new, uh, or they just think that this is a better way, even though eh, maybe in theory it's better, but practically it doesn't matter, that kind of thing. So, I mean, programmers aren't always just right, because that's the choice they make, but I am saying that I don't know, deconf, for instance, I mean, it exists and people are using it. I'm assuming that a lot of programmers must think it's a good enough idea to to use. If I were writing a GNOME app, I probably wouldn't default to deconf. Or maybe I would eventually, because maybe I would think, well, I want to just, I want to conform to, to what everyone else within GNOME is doing, and it would be, for the user, less of a good experience to not put my settings into deconf and put it into, like, some surprise, I put my settings in .config, you know, that, that, that could be confusing, that could splinter it and be confusing. So, I don't know. There are considerations, uh, and I don't know if there's a right or a wrong answer necessarily, but I do know that, yeah, deconf is not my favorite invention. I don't feel great about it. I don't feel great when I'm using GNOME knowing that there's a deconf churning away under there doing who knows what. Not that I don't, like, trust it or anything, but it's just, I don't know, it seems unnecessary to me. But again, maybe I'm wrong. Like, maybe maybe they could try, maybe they've tried it with just a simple INI file and it just wasn't fast enough. That's fair. Next up is desktop file utils. And this is um, a set of three utilities to... Uh, to help you when you're creating .desktop files. We've talked about .desktop files before, I do know that. They're wonderful, wonderful conventions of Linux. I, I'm, I'm a big fan. And one of the... I mean, no, I am. I am a big fan. I don't think... I, I don't believe that a .desktop 
file should be the only way to define something. I will say that. And currently, it kind of is, and, and that kind of annoys me. Uh, here's what I'm actually talking about. So, so a .desktop file is a text file. It is a plain text file, which we all love. And you, it's a pretty simple file. It's it's a, an INI style file. So square brackets, desktop entry, close square bracket, and then a series of uh, key value pairs. So for instance, name equals Mozilla Firefox. Some system out there knows that if they want to find out the name of the thing that this .desktop file represents, it can grep for name equals, and it'll get that string. I mean, we can even try that ourselves. So I've got this, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm looking at a, a desktop file for Firefox. Uh, it happens to be a one that I create myself, slash user, slash local, slash share is where I put it, because in theory I want all of my many users to have a a access to it. And by many users, I mean me. Um, yeah, it should be, it really ought to just be in dot local slash share slash applications. But for whatever reason, I decided slash user local share applications. So I'm going to do a grep for name equals on that file. And sure enough, as the name, I get name equals Mozilla Firefox and generic name equals Firefox. So actually I would need to put maybe a caret in front of that name. And then I have, then I only get name because that's the beginning of the, of the line. No generic name. It has to start with name. Um, so you can find values out of that pretty quickly if you, if you know what to look for. The cool thing about these files is that when you integrate them into your Linux desktop, uh, your Linux desktop is trained to to pretend like a .desktop file that has its executable bit active. Just pretend like it's an application. Present it to the user as if it's an application. And present it to the system as if though it was an application. And that's a really, really handy convention because that means that you can you can sort of launch things with i don't know like a 10 or 12 line file in really really basic syntax i mean i and i is is one of the most basic syntaxes out there you can't you can't get it too wrong you can miss something you can screw something up but but it's pretty easy it's not like xml or even yaml even yaml meaning yaml is supposedly simple but i and i really really simple it's a word, and then an equal sign, and then some more words. That's it. Um, yeah, square brackets as well that you need up at the very top. But, I mean, that's that's it. It's simple. Uh, it's easy to create yourself, and to create by yourself. It's not easy to create yourself, but you already exist, so it's okay. Um, so... For, for Firefox, for instance, I do a curl of Firefox from their, like, their, their latest stable build. I curl it down to my machine, dump it into slash opt somewhere, and then make sure that this file exists in user local share applications. And that's how I keep my Firefox up to date on Slackware. I used to use the ESR, the extended support release, but websites, I guess, it's fine for me to know that it's in ESR. It's fine for Mozilla to know that it's ESR, but the rest of the internet refuses to believe that it's a, a, a modern browser if it's like not literally the latest release, which is really annoying. So you get all kinds of like warnings about your out-of-date browser and, and please go go download Chrome or uh, whatever the, you know, Safari or the... Um, edge um you know and you just like i don't i'm not gonna do that i've got firefox it's fine it's esr it's fine but you just get alerts a lot so i just basically when i get alerted by firefox that there's an update i run firefox update dot sh and it does everything 
And because this .desktop file is in my is in a path for known desktop applications, it, it shows up in my K menu just just as if though it was had it was the Firefox um, that I got straight from Slackware. It's not. It's updated whenever I want it to, but it it acts like it is, and it's it's quite convenient. And that's what a desk desktop file makes possible. It is very convenient. I, I I was I'm complaining a little bit about it because it wouldn't it be also really nice if you could just drag the pre-compiled, um, I don't know, binary of, of processing, for instance. It's a Java subset processing. Drag, or, or Arduino, IDE. I think, I think, I think that's sometimes pre-compiled. Either way, you know, like these things that exist, what, what if you could just drag that icon into your applications directory and that would pop up? Like, what if you didn't need a .desktop? You could have a .desktop for more information, but if you didn't, you it would still somehow show up. I don't know. So that's why I'm, that's like the one hesitation I have about it, is that at some point you do have to create that .desktop file, and that's a little bit annoying sometimes. I, I would love it if somehow there was something better, like some some way to just make the .desktop file exist, or make it really friendly and easy to create, I don't know. It's just, it is a little bit annoying. It's not annoying for me, of course, it's, it's one of those things where it's just like, it's an awkward conversation to have with someone when they sit down at their new Linux computer that you've built them lovingly, and you say, here's your new Linux computer, and they say, great, I want to install my Trello app. And you think, I don't even know what a Trello is. Like, what is that? I mean, I, I know what a Trello is. But, um, how do, where does that app come from? And then they describe it to you, and you go get it, and of course it's not released for Slackware, obviously. Um, but you find a version that'll work, and you think, okay, I can do this. And you go through the steps, and, and then you install it, and it's great, it's perfect. It doesn't show up in the menu. Okay, well, you work a little bit more, and it, and then you, you grab an icon from the internet, and you marry that to the, the application, and you define it in the desktop file, you put the desktop of the file in the right place, you put Trello in the right place, because you have to have that somewhere on the system that like executable uh that the that your user won't screw up and and then finally in the end it shows up in the menu that's not a great experience as oh you want to you want your trello app okay hold on so go to the site yep download that uh-huh and put it into this folder okay you're done that's what i want and and that's not what we have so uh, i mean it, it probably is frankly so let's go to FlatHub really quick. Or, or oh my gosh, I'm doing I'm doing URLs backwards because in my head I thought I think I'm thinking of .desktop files and Flatpak reference files, which all reverse the domains. So I literally, yep, I was doing it backwards. Uh, let's just type in. I don't know why I've latched onto Trello as an example. I mean, it's a real life example. I had to tr install that for someone. Yeah. Okay. So it actually doesn't exist on on Flatpak. Maybe it's a myth. Maybe I'm not even thinking of the right thing. Yeah, I'm not sure. Not really sure what I was thinking of, actually. I, I don't see anything like that. But anyway, there are applications out there, like the Arduino IDE, um, you know, lots of different applications that you, you just download them and they just deliver a package onto your onto your desktop. And you just think, well, what am I know what to do with this, but what are all my friends going to do with this? How am I going to explain this to them? How am I going to guide them through this really, really simple like code thing when I can't even get them to 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 save a, a text document as a text document. I guarantee you, 
you're going to guide someone through how to make a .desktop file and they're going to they're going to save something as an ODT and not understand why it's not working. Guarantee it. Okay, anyway, that's the desktop <laughs> file utils which I have not at all talked about. So, desktop dash file dash validate for instance. Well, that seems like a useful tool. Let me point it at my <laughs> At my desktop file, which is working, but I'm still going to validate it. Let's see. Okay, there's an error. Value internet for key categories in group desktop entry uh, contains an unregistered value internet. So that's not a valid uh, thing. Uh, values extending the format should start with x dash. And then it says hint for the value internet. Uh, do the... Um, does not contain a registered main application might only show up in a catch-all section of the application menu. Um, is that right? Where where does Firefox show up? Not in internet, I don't think. I never noticed that before. That's really funny. I must have custom just dragged it onto my um onto my thing. Oh, it's, it is lost and found, so that would be a catch-all. Fascinating. I never noticed that. Okay, cool. So there you go. Uh, desktop file validate really really nice and i'll have to f fix my script uh, soonish desktop file uh or desktop dash file dash install does exactly what it sounds like it's going to do it 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 ensures that the uh, dot desktop file is is registered on on the well is is placed in a, a valid location, and then it also, um, it rebuilds, well, it optionally rebuilds the MIME info cache. So that's really handy too. I, I usually do a kbuild psychoca 5, but dash dash rebuild dash MIME dash info dash cache would probably be a good thing to do next time I install a desktop uh, file, a, a desktop file, a dot desktop file. So that's really, really handy to know. And then finally, um, I'm actually noticing an error here or an inaccuracy in the so I'm I'm just reading the the file info from from Slackware from the you know the Slackware source and it lists desktop dash file uh, dash menu dash dash tool which loads the .v folder info and .menu files and does operations on them that's not what this package uh, contains at least anymore um, now it contains d uh, update dash desktop dash database, which again kind of seems like a useful sounding thing. Um, let's do a dash dash help on that uh, just to get a description, and there is no description. Oh, build cache database of MIME types handled by desktop files. Um, okay, so it's actually not any more useful than the install. It's just broken out from the install. And, I, and either way, it's th that's another, I guess, minor complaint I would have about the whole dot .desktop system. It is nice, but in theory, you, you have to update the cache to, to get it to, to sort of jiggle the wires to make sure that it shows up in your in your application menu, which you don't really want to have to do. That feels like turning it off and turning it back on or, or re restarting the application or something. And I, I don't love that. Now, part of the problem in, in the past for me has been that I didn't know about desktop-file-validate. So sometimes my application wouldn't show up in the right place because I'd gotten a value wrong. And that's good to know now that I know because now maybe I'll have to load the database less frequently, um, quite potentially. So that could be good. Because, um, I mean, a lot of times I would, you know, y y it doesn't work. And so you think, oh, okay, well, I'll just run k, uh, k, uh, k, k build psychoca and 
and and hopefully that'll force the application to load and then it wouldn't and i'd think okay well maybe it'll just load you know rebuild everything when i when i reboot or something so then i just kind of forget about it and reboot and hopefully it shows up and then it doesn't so then i just open up the application thing and drag the launcher into the panel myself and, and then it's there anyway and i forget all about it um so it's good to know about these tools and i do hope to use them at some point for good because that that that's useful like really really good i love a good linter i honestly or a validator whatever i really do i absolutely love that i think they're really really useful we could use more of them let's just really really start using them um and i think Another thing that I really, really love and think we should do more of is coffee. Let's go get a cup of coffee. We'll come back, finish the show. I've got coffee. This is, this is it. This is Big Cozy. This is from Flight Coffee. I got my shipment of Big Cozy in this past week, and it's really good. Uh, They call it their winter blend or whatever, and um, sure, sure, it's, it's a winter blend. Why not? I mean, it's, it's, it's just a coffee. It's, it doesn't, doesn't have anything fancy in it. It is, it is just coffee. It's a limited edition winter blend, though. They say that it's going to be reminiscent of Milo, Hokey Pokey, and Nutmeg. And I'm betting that to many of you, dear listeners, that makes no sense. So Milo, for my American friends, is like uh, Nestle Quick. It's just a different brand, same same deal. Um, or Ovaltine, actually. More like Ovaltine than Nestle Quick. Um, because it, I think there's some malt there i think it tastes like there is it's good milo is good um hokey pokey is some weird concoction that they make that i think is a little bit like um the crunchy part of a butterfinger which i've I've never actually had a butterfinger it looks disgusting to me but and the name of it really it's not not appealing to me butterfinger um but the uh yeah it's like this crunchy thing i think you make it with like sugar and baking powder or something like that and so the the sugar sort of crystallizes but the baking powder causes it to um to rise and so you end up with like this hard candy of just just sugar and i think maybe maybe there's butter in there i don't know but it's a thing in new zealand they call it hokey pokey it's kind of a traditional kiwi um dessert or or something i'm not really sure uh they put it in like a lot of things they put it in like ice cream i think i don't like ice cream either weirdly um so i don't know i've never had hokey pokey and i don't know anything about it but i know it is a thing that they really like here so milo good hokey pokey eh. nutmeg of course good but um that said these are just like there it's just flavors that they're saying are reminiscent like that this that this coffee might make you think of i guess so what what the coffee actually is is 50 percent brazil araponga uh natural 30 percent sumatra mandling and then 20 percent uh rwanda rugali so those it's a mix of three different beans the result of it is really yeah it's just a nice 
full flavor. It really is. It's a full, deep flavor that kind of gets down into your just the back of your throat, and just it's it's warm and it's great, uh, and it's it just feels it's a robust, robust. Let's call it robust. Um, so that and yeah, sure. It's I guess it's big and cozy. Why not? Um, I. I I think it sounds like a rap song from the 90s, Big Cozy. But um, it is good. It is tasty. Shockingly, they didn't send me a trading card for this, which, you know, I mean, I don't care. I don't need I don't need a trading card for my coffee, really. At, you know, if, if at the end of the day, I'm okay without them. It's just my collection of trading cards is now going to be incomplete. I, I will never have the limited edition of, of Big Cozy trading cards. Um, oh, well. That's this one... It's one I'm missing out on. Uh, let's see. I, I mean, they may not exist. They might not. They might have just realized that printing a bunch of cardboard paper, a bunch of cardboard things, just to remind you of what coffee you've clearly ordered yourself and are now consuming. Maybe that doesn't. Maybe that's not all that um, that important. Okay. So the next one in Slackware is DJ D. DJ View Libre, which is a web-centric document and image format. I have done an entire, at least one episode about DJ View. It's on Hacker Public Radio, episode 2767. It's called DJ View or DJ Deja View and other paperless document formats. And then I revisit the topic in episode 2771 in a uh, thing called uh, Embedding Hidden Text in Deja Vu Files. I, I was playing around with DJ Vu um, a fair amount for a while because I was really, really just trying to come up with something practical for a, an alternative to PDF. And, I mean, there it's funny, PDF. It really does serve a specific purpose. And I guess, like, the... It, 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 no, here's what it is. It serves two purposes. One is to be exactly laid out a specific way, and then the other is to contain the text data of what it's portraying. Those are two completely sort of oppositional purposes. DJ View does the one thing. It is the the thing that, that says, I'm going to look exactly one way. Whereas EPUB pretty much does the other thing. It, per, it, it contains the text data. It makes more sense as two applications, really. Like, if you think about it, like, why, why would you want the thing to not ever change? This is my PDF. Do not change its layout. Oh, but give me access to the text not in the way that it looks, but as text. I mean, if you've ever tried to just select text out of a, of a PDF, especially like a double column PDF, I mean, sometimes it can be a nightmare. And 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 then you, and at that point you think, why are you even giving me this? Just give me a file with the text in it. Don't don't try to you know it's it's it is so reverse. It's so backwards. It's just it is like I want the text. Okay, well let me. Let me arrange it in a weird way for you that mice don't really understand. Like, your computer interface will not understand that that gap there between the two columns means different sentence. So, so, it, 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 yeah, it's just a horrible, horrible system. I go on about PDFs way too much. So anyway, DJ View was something I was very interested in because I was hoping maybe it would be a, an alternative to PDF. As it turns out, PDF is ubiquitous. I mean, that's just the fact. That's everyone, every device out there that reads a document 
has a PDF document reader, and none of them have a DJ view, um, DJ view viewer. So it's it's useless. I mean, it it isn't useless, but it is useless, and it's also a little bit useless because there are also comic book archives, which I I've done a Hacker Public Radio episode on that as well. And you can't get any simpler than a comic book archive. The uh, comic book archive has uh, just a bunch of JPEGs. Do that, dump all of the text into a text file, and you're good to go. Like, those are the, you know, like, again, two two different formats there. But, I mean, you got the layout, and then you've got the text elsewhere. I that That's fine. EPUB, you, you get a layout and the text. DJView, you can actually embed text. You can do it, but it is not, it's not super easy. It is a, I don't think you would want to do it manually, and yet I, I don't know that there's a really a super easy way to get it right in an automated fashion either, so I'm not too sure where DJView uh, sort of fits in. It is an interesting format, though, and you can create them, and like I say, I've done a whole Hacker Public Radio episode on how to do it, so it's a thing that you can do, but how useful it is on a practical level... I, I'm really not convinced that it's that it's super practical. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe there's an argument, well, it could be good for archiving and stuff like that. Well, sure, but how confident are we that, um, that as an archive format, this will be around? That would be my concern. So DJ View Libre um, contains a bunch of stuff. It contains um, any two DJ View, BZZ, C44, CJB2, a bunch of different um, commands. So I'm just going to kind of fly by the 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 basics so a dot dj djvu dot djvu is the extension it's an image that has been encoded as a djview file a djview can contain one or more images stored as quote pages to manually produce a dj a deja vu you can use one of two encoders you can use C44, that's uh, meant for the higher quality images. And then there's also CJ, CJB2, which is intended just for simple two-tone images. Uh, so these are encoders, and they each uh, accept a different kind of image format. C44 can process a JPEG file and, and uh, some other, uh, like a dot pnm i think uh cjb2 can process a dot pbm or a dot tiff image so those are you, you've got a weird i don't i i don't know i don't know why like why i guess you know, why not right you can just convert your files with image magic and then uh you know feed it into your your thing like convert dash density uh you know whatever 200 foo.png foo.pnm uh and then from there you can use like for instance six, uh, a C, c44 uh so c44 dash dpi 200 foo.pnm foo.djview you've just created a deja vu file if your image is really really simple like it's just black text on white page uh, you can convert it with the simpler encoded. Uh, again, you may need to convert it to a uh, intermediate format. If it's a PNG, you'll have to translate it to a .pbm or a TIFF file first. I think it was TIFF, right, for that one. Um, and then you convert it with CJB2. So CJB2-DPI, let's say 200 again, foo.pbm space foo.djvu, and you've just created another .pbm. DJVU file. But that's just one image in one file. The the kind of the interesting thing about DJView is that you can then take a bunch of DJView files and 
put them into an, another bigger DJU file, and then you get um, multiple pages. So for that, you use the djvm command. djvm-c uh, page1.djvu, page2.djvu, page3.djvu. Of course, they don't have to be sequential either. It could be page um, 100-a.djvu, page 98 dash final dot djv you know it, it doesn't care you're listing them in the way that you want them to appear uh, and then the the last argument is uh my book dot djvu you do that all those djvu files that you've defined with the dash c get wrapped up in a single file called my book dot djvu now like i said there are a bunch of other commands but i just don't think they're really that worth i, I don't i'm not going to go through every single one they are there are useful things here though i mean you can do a lot with djvu it's not a simple it is not a comic book archive. It, it, you can do a lot more. You can insert pages, for instance. So if you know that you need a page, uh, let's say a cover page. So djvm-i for input, mybook.djvu, cover page.djvu1. Now page one becomes your cover page and all of the other pages ripple down uh, to fit. Really, really nice. Very nice. You can delete pages as well. djvm-d for delete mybook.djvu uh, page, I don't know, 101. Now you've just deleted page 101. You can also create outlines. So unlike a comic book archive, Again, it's not just a, a folder of, a, you know, a zip file of images, which is literally all a comic book archive is. Um, it, it, there, there's a, there's an index here. The, the syntax is a little bit weird. You do a lot with parentheses. So parentheses, bookmarks, parentheses, open parentheses, quote, cover page, close quote, close, uh, open quote, number one, close quote, close parentheses, open parentheses, uh, chapter one, number three, you know, so you're saying like the cover page is one, uh, then the chapter one is page three, and you do all of those in parentheses for some weird reasons. Well, not weird reason. It's it's defining the level. So if you want there to be a section one within a chapter, then you wouldn't close the bookmark. That makes sense. Uh, it's just I don't know. It's 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 a little bit awkward to look at. I think I think it would be a little bit nicer if it had some other delimiter. I mean I know as a as an Emacs user I shouldn't be afraid of parentheses. Um, but the cool thing is there that once you once you have it, you you can apply it with DJ. DJV, DJVU said. So yeah, it's, it looks like DJV used, but it's DJVU said. Dash E for execute, I guess. Uh, quote set dash outline space outline.txt or you know, whatever you called your file with your bookmarks, uh, close quote dash S for save, maybe my book.djvu. And then if you open the DJVU file, you actually have like bookmark listings off to the side of your your djvu viewer that of course brings up the question what do you open a djvu file with anyway well ocular of course like that'll that'll read djvu it's kind of cool and then the the part i really really won't go into is you can you can also embed text and and that the the file format of that is um well it's just it's just it's just not great, honestly. Um, you you have to basically position, as it were, the text on on the image. So you're doing things like page zero zero two five five zero three three zero zero parentheses line one six six one two three three seven two two three five two three six nine 
quote my title close quote parenthesis you know because you're like you're you're actually telling it sort of like where to secretly render the text in this djvu file and and that can be really complex to try to calculate i think i don't know how you would calculate that really easily i mean i guess you could with like i don't know image recognition software or something like almost almost as if though you were going to do um like ocr and maybe kind of like calculate <laughs> where where the words should be i don't know it, it seems complex to me uh and i i really wouldn't want to have to do that a lot that would be I don't know, that just seems like a lot of numbers to try to organize. Like, there's four numbers for every line, and then the text. I just, I, I can't imagine how you're supposed to make that easy to implement. There is an interesting PDF to DJVU converter called DJVU Digital. That's included in this package. Uh, that's a pretty easy one. DJVU Digital dash dash words foo dot PDF space foo dot DJVU. You now have uh, the pages, the bookmarks, and the embedded text of a PDF in a DJVU file. The dash dash words option maps all the embedded PDF text to the corresponding points in the DJVU file. Um, and there's the irony. The easiest way to get a DJVU file is to create a PDF and then translate the PDF to DJVU. And all you've accomplished is you've created a file format, or a file in a format, that your devices probably can't open. So, I don't know. Limited limited use, but interesting. DJVU is definitely interesting. It's fun to mess around with. You should, get, you should give it a try if you're at all interested in uh, document uh, formats. I think it is worth looking at. All right, let's look at .conf. It's a lightweight and simple configuration file parser that contains many features. Uh, and that is what it is. It's a C library that helps you parse configuration files. There's a couple of good little example files on the GitHub page, github.com slash williamh slash .conf. That's D-O-T-C-O-N-F. Go into the examples uh, and you'll see, I mean, start with a simple one. Um, bottom up, simple.c, and uh, you can kind of get the feel for what it's doing. I mean, basically it loads the file, and I mean, in the case of the simple example, it just prints it to your screen. It uses printf to print all the values. But I mean, that demonstrates that what it's doing is it's loading the file and parsing it, and then giving you access to the to the values uh, within that file. So I mean, obviously you would need to know what to expect. But presumably, I mean, this is called .conf, so the idea here is that you have created a configuration file that you now need your application to, to, to parse. And so you use this to, to ingest the file, and then you're able to grab those values positionally um, to, um, to, to use. So that's really useful. You, you'll find lots of little parsers like that for all of the different languages. I mean, it's a really, really common thing, right? And it, it goes right along with the Berkeley database and the deconf talk that we had at the beginning before the copy break. That's exactly, I mean, that's the thing. This is the alternative to that in a way, this, um, this .conf. If you, if you have some data that you need to dump into a file, put it into a configuration file, get, create a standardized format for yourself. Doesn't have to be, doesn't have to be anything special, but it just needs to be standard and consistent. And then you can ingest it with something that understands, you know, how, how to do field separation and you're done. You've got all your values. It, 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 it's functionally a database, except it's not. But I mean, neither is Berkeley and Decon. I mean, they're not like relational databases. They're just 
data stores. And, and, and that's what this deals with, .conf. Like you've got a text file of a bunch of value, key, key and value pairs, throw it at .conf, it'll, it'll parse it for you and you can have those values. Finally, uh, in the D section, so we're all done, after this one, DVD author. It's exactly what it sounds like. It's it's the application that, that helps Linux create DVDs. And I know I, I very frequently joke about how nobody knows what a DVD is anymore or nobody uses them. And I always get um, a couple of people chiming in saying, actually, I do use DVDs. And I mean, admittedly, so do I. I have a bookshelf not a big bookshelf, but I have a shelf of some DVDs still. I mean, most of them I did rip uh, for myself because I, I just didn't want to carry around physical DVDs for the rest of my life, but um, they are useful to have. And, you know, if you don't have those, then you have them on a hard drive, and then you start thinking, oh my gosh, what if I lose my hard drive? What if it goes bad? I have to back up the whole thing. You got all these movies, and so on. So, I mean, sometimes DVD is really nice to have. DVD author is the thing that will help you create a standard like movie DVD that'll play in DVD player. There are a couple of different um, commands. There's DVD author, DVD dir del, DVD unauthor, MPEG2 desk, uh, SPU mux, and SPU unmux. Probably, probably not going to go through all of these, but um, it, it's probably worth at least at least talking about sort of the the basics. DVD author. So how do you how do you use this thing? Well, a couple of different steps. You have to create, you have to have video, right? You have to have video and audio that you want to put onto a DVD. Then you build what's called a DVD tree, then you build a DVD image file, and then you burn the image to a, a physical disk. And I will, I'm going to just say up front, I, I don't use DVD author. It's it's too, why would I want to do it this way, uh, honestly? Uh, I mean, first of all, again, I haven't actually burned a movie to a DVD in ages, but I mean, even if, if I had, I wouldn't do it this way. I would use K3B or I would use uh, a great little software called Imagine. Uh, I actually haven't looked into that lately. I should check to make sure it's still being updated. Um, but Imagine is a, or Imagine or Imagination? One of those two. It's a great little DVD authoring uh, GUI application. So you can create menus, you can create chapters and drop things. It's, it's really nice. You can do a lot of that stuff with DVD author as well. But I mean, how, how, how complex do you want it? to be. It's already complex, trust me. So the the thing that you have to do to get everything ready is, of course, you have to have the video, and it needs to be in an MPEG uh, format, .mpg. That's that's the motion picture group. Uh, it's not what that stands for, but it's it's something like that. Um, and and that's their, that's their codec. It's the thing that the DVD is going to expect. So you need that. Then you need to create an ISO image from your, from your, well, containing your, your video. Now, DVD author doesn't do that. So you would have to use a different command called gen, what is it called? Gen, gen ISO, no, I make, make ISO FS. Yeah, make ISO FS. There is another command called gen ISO image or something like that. And I guess that doesn't come by default on Slackware, as I've just now discovered, which is fine. Um, so yeah, so MKFS, ISO, or MKISOFS, and so you can generate an ISO, sort of a, the, the, the file tree that way. And then once you've got that, you pass it over to DVD dash author, or, or rather DVD author. And, and the command for that would be something like DVD author dash O my DVD for output dash T 
t uh, migratemovie.mpeg. That creates the DVD tree with a really weird structure that used to confuse me so much, um, but it, it, it'll be like my DVD audio underscore ts you've probably seen this if you've ever looked at a dvd uh, on your computer um audio underscore ts and i believe that's usually i think that's always empty and then because it was meant it's actually not the audio streams for your movie it was it was meant if i recall correctly it was meant for um a dvd audio specification that never really took off so uh so my dvd uh, slash video underscore ts contains video underscore ts dot bup video underscore ts.ifo vts underscore zero one underscore zero bup and so on really weird names not not great not wonderful um but there's it's split up into streams or something um and and that's what you get the cool thing about dvd author is and that'll play like you burn that folder to a dvd and and you'll end up with a playable dvd and that's kind of exciting but the 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 nice thing about DVD author, I guess, I mean, aside from, once again, like, I would never use this. This is too complex to just get some data onto a disk. But the nice thing is that you have a, there's a lot of flexibility in how you define what you're doing. Like, I don't think you would use DVD author manually this way either. I think that would be a lot of trouble. I mean, you would if you had no other choice. But I think to today, DVD author may still be relevant because it is, it can essentially be defined in plain text. Uh, there's an XML format for a control file that you can create for DVD author. It's, it's you know, it's not as simple as the INI format for a DJV, no, not, I, not INI for DJVU, for dot .desktop, uh, but it is simpler than the DJVU files. So DVD author, dest, dest equals my DVD, close tag, uh, open um, VMGM, self-closing tag, open title set, open title, pgc, vob file equals, uh, you know, my, my movie.mpeg, uh, close that tag, close pgc, close titles, close title set, close dvd author. You're done. That, that says make, do all the things with this stuff. But obviously if you had more stuff that you wanted to include, then you can include more in it. So, uh, then you just run dvd author dash x my file dot or my movie dot xml and it, it extracts all the information that you would you normally pass to a, a command through that xml so you could have lots of in the pgc element you could have lots of vob files vob you know my 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 movie dot mpeg my uh, documentary about my movie dot mpeg my special features dot mpeg you know and all of those are now listings on on that dvd you can split those further into chapters by by defining uh chapter times like just and it's and it's easy like vob file equals my movie chapters equals um zero comma zero 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 i guess because probably the first thing would start at zero but um or no sorry zero and then comma and then i guess chapter two maybe would start at uh 10 minutes so one zero colon zero zero and then comma uh maybe another chapter about 23 minutes 23 colon zero zero and so on and then you, so you you make dvd author you know parse that xml and and you get your 
all of the data that you need on your DVD, and it's beautiful, and you've just all you've done is write XML. I know I started out saying that I would never use DVD author, but I mean this is kind of cool. And it gets cooler. You can create menu loops, you know, so that when people put in the DVD, it goes straight to a menu first, and then you can well, you should probably ensure that after your movie uh, it, it goes back to the menu. So, I mean, first you would have to create a menu, um, which, I mean, that's that's what the VMGM self-closing tag is for. Um, you just open up a menu item in there and define a, a menu loop, like a menu1.mpeg or whatever. Um, and then after the, the first track or the second track or however many tracks you want to play before you go back to the menu, you do a call menu, semicolon, and then it knows... DVD author knows, okay, after the default action after a track has played is to go back to the menu. Um, and you can do more than that because like that's just that I haven't really described the menu and I don't don't want to go into all of the menu but you can it's it's in it's it's a lot it's it's a lot of data but again it's it's not it's not the it does work like you so you can do sub pictures and create buttons out of the sub pictures within the menu and so on so you can do all of this in XML it's very cool and again I don't think I would ever do it. Not really. But you could see how this would be really, really useful if you were cranking out DVDs, uh, you know, custom DVDs or something, and you just, you, or, or, or something like that. I don't, actually, maybe not this wouldn't be useful, because even then, you would just spend your time in a GUI application, designing the thing correctly, nicely, and then you would just make copies of that. You would just clone that disk. So I don't know. I, I think it's, it's, it is fascinating that this exists, and at a time, I'll bet this was absolutely one of the most important things to happen on Linux. Because at a time, I mean, DVDs were really important. It was an important media, it was an important entertainment media and storage media. It was a big deal, and you wanted that on your operating system. You couldn't not have that on Linux. So DVD author existing was probably a very big deal. Nowadays, it's still probably a very big deal, but it's just less exciting, especially in its raw form, at least to me. I don't know. It's, that's just me. Maybe, you know, maybe there's there's a use case there that I'm just not thinking of. Um, and, and that's easy not to think of, because if I'm not making DVDs, which I'm not, then the use case is pretty difficult to imagine. I can't really think of when I would want to sit down and figure out DVD author. However, it's there, it's on Slackware, I believe it's used on the back end of like K3B and a bunch of other applications. So it is non-trivial. It is an important, important command. And I don't, I, I don't, I'm not trying to say that it's not important to me. It's just not something I want to use directly. That's DVD author. That's the whole D section of the L software set of Slackware. Thanks for listening. Next time we'll do the E section. Thanks for listening. My name's Klaatu. You can reach me anytime over email with feedback or comments, tips, or just to say hi. My email address is klaatu at slackermedia.info. You can also reach me on the Mastodon network, not klaatu, at mastodon.xyz. The show's intro and outro music is by Fat Chance Lester. You can find their music on bandcamp.com or on gnuworldorder.info in the archive you'll find a music directory containing the album from which this music has been extracted 
Until next time, thanks for listening and keep the source open. people in every part of the world are focusing their attention on this program.